Amen. Take a seat, if you would. Believe it or not, there was a reason for me putting that song there at the very end before I came up here and preached. Are you ready to gird your loins this morning? Strap yourselves in? I didn't get a headache, but this has been one of the most challenging four verses that we're going to try and go through this morning. Okay, and you'll, when we get to it, you'll, you, you'll see it. It's Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Um, yeah, and you've got to ask yourself, what in the world is these four verses in the Bible for? Well, we're going to look at that. So, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I've always needed your strength and your your wisdom, uh, your thoughts to prepare these sermons and, and to preach. And again, it's not about me, it's about you. It's about putting the focus on you and to teach us, to give us better understanding, to grow in knowledge of, of just you and knowledge of the, of the Bible and in the end that we may fall in love with you. And so strengthen us, keep us focused this morning and speak through me for the sake of your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now we're gonna talk about a, uh, what I call a, a, really it's total depravity or radical corruption. I'll explain that in a moment here. But a, a descent into sin. We've been looking at, obviously, Genesis chapter four and a little bit chapter five. But I wanna begin by talking about, right now, one of the most popular shows on Netflix. On Netflix. You have any idea what it is? It's a new series about the life of Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> it's called Dahmer, uh, or Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer Story. And American culture uh, appears to have a fascination with serial killers, although I doubt the victims' families feel that way. Yes, it is up there on one of the top-rated uh, series right now on Netflix. And FYI, Jeffrey Dahmer started killing in 1978 at the age of 18 years old. He wasn't arrested for, another, uh, for murder until 1991, after a would-be victim escaped and led police back to Dahmer. Um, in his Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin home, it was there that some of the gruesome details of his life of killing were seen, by way of photos of mutilated bodies and body parts strewn across the apartment. Even had a vat of acid he used to dispose of victims. In all, Dahmer killed 17 people, mostly young men of color, and during his trial, Dahmer admitted to drilling a hole into his victims' heads in an attempt to turn them into mindless sex slaves. Uh, he served time in prison twice, the first time for molestation, the second time for murder. Uh, he was such a, I guess you would, would, would be troubled or hideous or gruesome person that he didn't even last long in prison. Uh, he was murdered by a fellow inmate in 1994. Now, Jeffrey Dahmer's story reminds us uh, of the doctrine of total depravity or some call it radical corruption. This is often misunderstood, but the doctrine of total depravity 
is basically in an acknowledgement that the Bible teaches that as a result of the fall of man, which of course happened in Genesis chapter 3, every part of man, his mind, his will, his emotions, and his flesh, have been corrupted by sin. In other words, sin affects all areas of our being, including who we are and what we do. It penetrates to the very core of our being so that everything is tainted by sin. That's why Isaiah says that our most righteous acts are as filthy rags before God. Now we've been looking at the story of man for the past few weeks in that first society. And that story, if, if the story of man, can really be described as a slow descent into sin. In studying the book of Genesis, which is a book of origins, we can see through a simple outline of the text the Holy Spirit's purpose for recording this history. And after the creation of the world in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we find the following written down for us, what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Again, remember this. God has created a utopian environment for man. And it was specifically crafted for us so that we could thrive. What do we do? We believe the lie of Satan that we could become like God. We willfully rebel against God and we commit the first sin. And the consequences of that sin are severe. There's guilt. There is shame. These things never existed, folks. There's guilt, there is shame, and there are curses. And for the woman, it's increased pain in childbirth and marital conflict in the form of a competition with her rightful head, her husband. The curse for the man, there'll be hard, toiling work farming land that produces a meager yield. And finally, for the man and for everybody, physical and spiritual death for all. But in all of this, God is revealed as a forgiver full of grace. What does he do? He provides an animal sacrifice for Adam and Eve that temporarily brings forgiveness and removes the guilt. He covers their shame, the shame of their nakedness. And he promises a coming redeemer who will unite God and man once again in a loving, personal relationship forever. That's Genesis 3. Genesis 4 We've been over this. We find the first example of false worship. This is the first story right after the fall of man. A deliberate, self-righteous offering, offered by who? Cain, that is rejected by God. From there we discover a host of other sins. There's unresolved anger, burning anger, that is mixed with bitterness in Cain. We find self-pity, a rejection of God's word. This is followed by premeditated murder of an innocent person, a hiding from sin, lying, a refusal to accept responsibility for your actions or for your sin, a protest of God's righteous judgment, and a life lived in open defiance to God's punishment. And keep in mind, folks, this is coming from the first child ever born. In all of human history, this is in Cain. And what's that followed by? The founding of secular society, which we've been talking about. And what does that society do? 
It exalts human achievements. It perverts marriage. It's filled with senseless violence. It exalts pride, all the while growing in an indifference towards God while boasting in evil. Are we beginning to see a pattern here in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4? You go to Genesis chapter 5, okay, what we find are a series of births and deaths. See that? Now, folks, where do we read today and in the past about births and deaths? In an obituary. And so Genesis chapter 5 really is nothing more than an obituary. And chapter 5 reveals that as human society develops, it is ultimately punctuated by death. These series of obituaries are brought about by sin. And this is the genealogy of the righteous people of Seth. And it's filled with universal death. No one escapes the consequences of sin. Now we get to Genesis chapter 6. We find that mankind is so thoroughly corrupt and evil that the wickedness was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's Genesis 6, 5. And folks, this happened over a period roughly of, of 1,536 years. Now, despite all of humanity's achievements, and what were they? Do you remember any of those? Agricultural, livestock, music, metallurgy, urbanization, poetry, and great advancements in that first society, we find that humanity is also growing in wickedness. And in Genesis chapter 6, society reaches a point, and, and you need to hear me on this, it is unredeemable. It's not worth being saved. God's patience has run out, and judgment for sin is initiated in the form of a worldwide flood. But before the worldwide flood happens, we have four verses that illustrate just how corrupt society had become. It's found in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And so we're going to be looking at this morning and what I call what a depraved society looks like. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. You guys ready? You awake? Yeah. All right, very good. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, I know it's, just, it's a pretty easy passage to understand, right? <laughs> no, it is not. Before we begin to look at this passage, let me say from the start that this is a very difficult passage of Scripture to understand. I mean, why did the Holy Spirit direct Moses to record this? I mean, there are volumes of articles and commentaries with various interpretations focused just on these four verses. Uh, one popular conservative interpretation that actually I 
uh, had ascribed to and I shared with the adult Sunday school a, a number of years ago was this, that demons left their place, took the form of men, had physical relations with human women, fathered ungodly offspring in an attempt to thwart the purpose of God in the coming of a future redeemer by polluting marriage in, in the line of mankind. And after studying this passage and preparing this sermon, I mean, and you would think, that, okay, that is somewhat biblical, right? It makes sense. I don't, I don't necessarily ascribe to that theory anymore. Parts of it I do, parts of it I don't. What I'm going to try and present to you this morning, what I will present to you, not try, I will present to you this morning, what I now believe to be the most scriptural and reasonable understanding of these four verses. And as always, we're going to break it down verse by verse, Starting in verse 1. Now it came about when the men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them. This is nothing more than a blessing from God, right? It's common grace. Both the secular and the sacred societies we talked about are fulfilling God's command of Genesis 1.28. They're being fruitful. They're multiplying. They're filling the earth. They're subduing it. But what stands out in this verse is easy and it's pretty simple. Only the daughters of men are mentioned. You see that? Surely sons were born to men as well during this time, right? Right? Yeah, of course they were. But only the daughters of men are mentioned. Why only mention daughters being born to men? Because Moses is setting up a very important contrast that we see in verse 2. That the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The question this verse and the entire four verses center on is the phrase, sons of God. They are the contrast to the daughters of men. You see that? You with me? Okay. Who are these sons of God? Well, when interpreting the Bible, and you, could, you should remember this, one always wants to interpret it according to the Bible. In other words, does the phrase sons of God appear elsewhere in the Bible? And it does. The oldest book in, of the Old Testament is the book of what? Job, very good. It was written right after the flood, during the time we call patriarchal history, starting with Abraham in Genesis 12. And the flood happened in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. You have Noah helping populate the earth. You have the Tower of Babel, then you have Abraham. Abraham was a patriarch, so right around the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Job and this was written and Job was alive. Okay? So this is very close to the, uh, to the flood. And so we know that the language used in the book of Job then would give us a good indication of the language, or the kind of language that would be used in the post-flood society or the Genesis period. So for example, in Job chapter 1 verse 6 we see this. Remember this? There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came among them. This is in Job chapter 1 where Satan wants to, you know, basically it's a bet between God and Satan. And Job is the, the, the subject here. And Satan presents himself before God. Are you familiar with this story? Who else is presenting themselves before God? other than Satan. The sons of God. You see that? You see that? 
So who are the sons of God? They're actually not humans, right? They can't be, because they're in the presence of God. So who are they? Angels. Okay. Well, we're going to see it. They're demons. And angels. It's both. Watch this. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Same thing here. The sons of God. Okay? Now, we also know, and this is fascinating, but these two verses tell us that the sons of God, which can include angels, but also fallen angels and demons, uh, and Satan came before the throne of God. So before the rebellion in heaven, led by Lucifer, who was Satan, where a third of the angels fell with him, Job 38, 7 tells us that the sons of God or angels were praising God during creation. Did you know that? So sometime around the first and second day, we think that that's when angels were created. Okay? And they're called here what? Sons of God. Now this is not evil spirits. This is probably all the sons of God, all the angels, if the rebellion happened after this creation. Okay? But again, they're there in the presence of God. The sons of God are angels. After the fall, or after this rebellion in heaven, the sons of God would still include all angels, including fallen angels, or demons, okay? So the sons of God is a term to designate in our passage here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. It's, these sons of God, are they doing a good thing or a bad thing? In cohabitation with women, they're bad things. So what are they? Are they good angels or are they fallen angels? They're fallen angels. Okay. In Genesis 6, since what they did are part of the reason for the coming judgment of God, we obviously deduce that they are fallen angels or demons. In fact, the oldest Jewish commentators in the view of the early church fathers is that the sons of God in chapter 6 of Genesis refer to demons or to fallen angels. So what we're being introduced to here in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, is the first demonic evasion upon the earth. See that? Okay. And they're trying to thwart the purposes of God. Satan did this back in the Garden of Eden when he took the form of an animal, a serpent, to tempt Eve. And this is just a continuation of his work by demons. Now, why did they do this? Well, first, the text tells us that they saw that the daughters of men were what? Beautiful. So obviously, evil spirits even think, ladies, yes, you're beautiful. Okay? But most importantly, they did this as a way to undermine the plan of God by corrupting the first society. These sons of God take these daughters of men as wives. The word take tells us that this was an actual marriage. Okay, this was not rape. That's what this word means, marriage. But whatever it is, it's something different than actual marriage because marriage is a union of what? A man and a woman who procreate and have children. And this, in essence, is what Genesis 6 is referring to. But Genesis 6, 2 is some perversion of to that general, normal pattern of marriage and procreation. Genesis 6, 1. 
Sons and daughters are being born, right? Between men and women. Genesis 6-2 is something different than actual marriage as instituted by God. It's a perversion of it. So now you have the perversity, the perversity of these fallen angels or demons. They're overstepping the boundaries of their realm, defying God, and enter the human realm for their corrupting an already corrupt society. You follow me so far? You just got it? Okay. Now the next logical question is this. Well, how did they do this? Right? How can an immaterial spiritual being, a demon, marry a woman? Well, the only way this is possible, I believe, is a demon must take the body of, of what? Of a man. Right? And we already know that Satan has the power to take over the body of an animal, and we know that righteous angels appear to Abraham in the form of men in Genesis 18 and 19. We know that Jacob wrestles with an angel in physical form. And we're reminded that we can even entertain angels without knowing it. Hebrews 13 tells us that. And the Bible is consistent on this. Whenever an angel appears on earth, they're able to be seen because they take a visible physical form and they always appear as a man. So it's reasonable to assume that they work through existing human bodies. We also know that demons can enter into human bodies. Remember, Jesus would often cast out demons that had what? Occupied or taken over, influenced or oppressed, whatever, uh, human bodies. And this is probably what we have in Genesis 6, chapter 2. And this is a terrible commentary on the state of the first society. Society has reached such a corrupt point that literally demons have taken up their residences in men with the purpose of cohabitating with women. Jump ahead to verse 4. It says, When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, everything in this verse indicates that what was born of this union was human. Satan's strategy was to move into the bodies of men and then to marry beautiful women and to produce children. This would be a demon-led union and would lead to a demon-led family. And to further illustrate how corrupt this society was, look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Who does God hold responsible for this abomination? God doesn't say, excuse me, my spirit is not going to strive with this demonic activity. He says what? My spirit is not going to strive with man. In other words, I am not going to allow men to do this. The implication is that this cannot happen, this demonic oppression or, or occupation, unless there is an openness and a willingness on the part of man. You follow me? In other words, the men were willingly opening themselves up to demonic involvement. That tells you how corrupt the first society was, and probably with the acknowledgement of the wife. The wickedness of society in the pre-flood era is so great 
Again, you have people willfully surrendering to demonic control. And the demons eagerly comply for the goal is the corruption of man and destruction of all humanity. And so now we begin to gain some insight into why God steps in and drowns out all of humanity in a worldwide flood except for eight people. Now these first four verses tell us that the wickedness of man had reached such proportion that they had willfully engaged in demonic relationships. And from what we learned the last the past two weeks, this society was not only indifferent to God, but living in open rebellion. They stopped seeking him, right? Instead, what did they seek? What does the text tell you in Genesis chapter 6? Now we know what they were seeking. Who were they seeking? Demons. You see that? They're seeking demons. And while we've gained some understanding of these four verses, there are still more questions. Namely, why would the people of the first society do this? Right? Why would you do that? Why would you want to have demonic involvement in your family? I think we gained some insight from the scriptures in the third chapter of Genesis, when Satan tempted Eve with the forbidden fruit, what did he say? Turn to Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Genesis 3, 1 through 5. You guys all right? Okay. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden you may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." You see, Eve said if she ate from the fruit of the tree of the garden, she would die. Satan counters with a lie, saying, you will not die. In other words, if you do what I tell you to do, you will not die. In fact, you'll be like God. You can beat God's judgment of eternal death. And folks, that is the original satanic lie. And by the time you get from the fall... And 1,500 plus years pass, despite their long lives, the sentence of death is still well known. Well, how do we know that? Because for most of those 1,500 years, who was still alive? Adam. He lived 930 years of the 1,500 plus years. He and Eve were eyewitnesses, were eyewitness testimony to this reality. There's now secondhand. Listen, folks, I was there. This is what he said. Okay? Adam explained to everyone the consequences of the curses and the resulting sickness and death, that yes, they still live with that. And even after the flood in Genesis 11, we read of the Tower of Babel. Turn to Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. Watch this. See if you recognize what the people are trying to do. They said, come, 
Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They're trying to build a tower to heaven. Why? Well, once again, they could not escape the consequences of the curse. They were still living with the same death reality as the pre-flood society. So they built a tower to reach heaven and married it with Babylonian mystery religions. The Bible speaks of so often. They thought they could just walk right into heaven and avoid death. And that's what these Babylonian mystery religions that, that go back to Tower of Babel teach. You can escape death. And this is the first attempt by man to literally build their own system into heaven, to defy death and to become higher than they really are. Humanity, energized by Satan and his demons, have been doing this ever since the Tower of Babel. Look at human history. The Egyptians believed if you obeyed their gods, you will sail across the river of death into the afterlife. That is why they buried boats with the pharaohs in the pyramids. They believed they could not only beat death, but they could be made like God. The Greeks believed in the mystic river of death awaits you, but across the mystic river is eternal life if you follow the gods. Native Americans believe if you bow down to a certain stone and smell the smoke and after the sacrifice, you will cross the river of death and go into the happy hunting ground. It isn't any different today. Joseph Smith of the Mormon false religion taught you'll have eternal life and you'll be a god on your own planet where you can eat celestial fruit and engage in celestial sex forever, populating it with your, your procreation. Look it up. You see, it's always the same lie of Satan. He says this, listen to me, you can be like God and you can live eternally escaping death. And the New Testament also provides some insight into why the first society would willfully unite with demons to create demon-led offspring. Now turn in your Bibles, you're going to go all the way back now. You're in Genesis, go all the way down here to 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20. Thankfully, we have these verses to help us understand Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. I have been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here's the key. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, and the patience of God kept waiting for the, in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now these verses not only tell us what Jesus did when his body was in the grave from Friday to Sunday morning before he rose, but they also give us insight into Genesis 6, 1 through 4. In his spirit, Jesus in, engaged in what we call prison ministry. See that? He went to a prison built for what? Spirits. It's for fallen angels or demons. 
who were disobedient. And when did this happen? When were these spirits, demons, disobedient? During the days of Noah. See that? When were the days of Noah? Well, Noah's mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. During the same time, demons were cohabitating with the daughters of men. What these sons of God, these fallen angels, these demons did was disobey God. How? We find out that they left their appointed realm or domain, the spirit world, and entered into the material world. So spirits are in the prison. Peter's referring to here in chapter 3 of his letter are, are to the spirits who were just being to God, to the boundaries that God had set for them in the same time as of Noah. So most likely, when the worldwide flood arrived then, and all of mankind died, except for Noah and his family, what happens to an evil spirit when it loses its, its house? It has to go to another one, right? But those spirits, those demons that were with, with those people, where were they sent? To a prison, okay? They were put in a prison. What they did was so bad, God imprisoned them. And it's here they wait their judgment for the perverted sin they had committed with the daughters of men. Now, turn to 2 Peter. Go one book over, chapter 2. We get more insight into what was going on. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 10. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, if he rescued righteous Lot, and it goes on and on and on to the very end, verse 10, especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. He can save the righteous, and he will definitely judge those who are deserving of judgment. Specifically, those who indulge in the flesh, its corrupt desires, and despise authority. Now, in these verses, Peter's making a point about God's judgment of who? False prophets and false teachers. You see that? They introduce destructive heresies. They malign the truth. They exploit their followers with words for the sake of, of greed. These false teachers are in direct conflict in what they teach with the plain teachings of God. That's what it means when it says, deny the master. And this brings swift destruction upon them. But the point Peter is making is seen by way of three illustrations, where he references three events that brought God's judgment. The first one is in, uh, the fallen angels who sinned by leaving their realm set by God and cohabitating with the daughters of men. Do you see that? Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, 
and did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah. So now we know the time of that is what? It's those angels, those demons that were cohabitating with the women. That's what he's referring to. That's the first illustration. The second illustration is the ancient world or the pre-flood society that was totally evil and therefore was wiped up by a worldwide flood. And the third illustration is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Gomorrah. Do you see those so far? Three illustrations of judgment. And what the second Peter passage adds to our understanding of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is the place of judgment for these demons. First Peter calls it a prison. Second Peter calls a place what? Hell in pits of darkness. Whether it's prison or, or, or hell or pits of darkness, either word is referring to the same event in the same place referenced in Genesis 6. The event, the demons cohabitating with the daughters of men, the place, it's called hell or a prison or pits of darkness, it is specifically reserved for these demons where they await judgment. And folks, this tells us that there are sins that are so wicked that God reserves a special place in hell for those who commit them. You know, one of those sins is what? What those demons did. Stepping out of their realm, cohabitating with women. We also now know that there's a special place of judgment reserved for who? He brings all this special place of judgment for who? Who is he talking to? False teachers and false prophets. They pervert the truth, they damn their followers to hell, and for them, there waits a special place in hell where they await judgment. It's reserved for them. This is why it says everyone should not strive to be a teacher. If you lead people astray, you prevent them from, from entering heaven, which is what false prophets and teachers do. Perhaps the hottest places of hell are reserved for you. And these verses in 2 Peter give us insight into why people in the first society willingly submitted to demonic activity in their life. Now, demons, we believe, through a willing man, preached a false doctrine. You follow me? And the people believed the lie. What were they teaching? I think the people of the pre-flood society, living under the shadow of death, like we do today, people died for a variety of reasons from old age to sickness or to murder. The obituary chapters of Genesis 5 testify to this reality. And can't you just hear Satan energizing a demon-possessed or demon-controlled man saying this? The curse of death, we can beat that. You won't die. Instead, I'll make you like a god. Does that sound familiar? Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 11, okay? And the people embraced the demonic lies. They welcomed demons into their lives because of the promise of escaping the death sentence that God had placed on them in the belief that they could live eternally as a god. See, it's the same lie Satan fed Eve in the garden, the same lie that people believed when they built the Tower of Babel, the same lie the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Native Americans and the Mormons believe, you can be like God, you can escape the curse of death, and you can live eternally. 
And to be more specific, I believe that the lie probably also included the fact that not only will you be like God, but your offspring, your children, will be like God. And they will not die. They'll live eternally. I believe Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is simply the first recorded history of that lie on a corporate scale. I mean, Satan promises heaven, but ultimately he only delivers hell. The demons in the ancient world were swiftly judged for this damnable heresy, and so will the false prophets and false teachers of today be judged swiftly. Let me share with you another reason why I believe this is what these demons preached. Peter also mentions what? The first two analogies were what? The angels and what they did, cohabitating with the daughters of men. The ancient world. The third illustration is what? Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? It parallels or it's connected to what happened to these fallen angels sent to pits of darkness. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah that brought the judgment of God? It, it, you're safe here. You can say it. The sin of homosexuality. Okay? And that's the closest human parallel to what these demons did. What do you mean? Well, the demons in Genesis chapter 6 went after strange flesh. And they stepped out of their appointed boundaries entered the material world of man, and polluted marriage. Now remember, what did Jesus say for angels? They do not marry. Mankind steps out of God's appointed limits when a man is with a man. That's homosexuality. Or a woman is with a woman. That's lesbianism. And for all who engage in this kind of behavior, according to 2 Peter 2, in 1 Peter 3, judgment is swift and certain. Certain? Why do you say that? Because look, look at verse 10. The Lord, the Lord knows how to keep you under judgment. He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now watch this, especially those who indulge what? the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. That's what the demons did. They despised authority. They went into men and cohabitating for the purpose of creating this you know, demon-led families. And that's what homosexuals and lesbians do. That's strange flesh that the angels went after. It's strange flesh for a man to go with, be with a man, a woman to be with a woman. And you're saying to God, I despise your authority. I don't believe what you say about marriage. I can be with a man. And they get aggressive about it. There is nothing more aggressive in our society today than the LGBTQ agenda. They're trying to force you to believe and accept their, their thinking. Let's look at one other passage found in Jude chapter 6. So just... Keep going to the right of your Bible, right before Revelation, you find this small book, small letter, Jude, chapter, chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verses 6 and 7. It ties us all together. Watch this. And angels who did not keep their own domain, 
but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds and in darkness for the judgment of the great day. But on what's that referring to? Genesis chapter 6, we've been reading 1 through 4, right? Now we understand what it is. Now watch. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, now what are the these referring to? It's going back to those angels and what they did. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah is comparable to that. In the same way as these, they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Again, a reminder. First Peter, this place is called a prison, where these demons are. Second Peter, hell or pits of darkness. And Jude, they're called eternal bonds under darkness. So again, you have these angels who are judged for being put into eternal change, awaiting the judgment of their great day. And like Peter, <coughs> Jude refers to Sodom and Gomorrah in the same way as these. Who are these? The demons. In the same way as these indulge in gross immorality, angels having sex with, with women. <laughs> That's going after strange flesh. It is just as it's outside of God's judgment and God's designed realm for a man to step into homosexuality. That's going after strange flesh. For a woman to step outside and to go after another woman. That is strange flesh. All of these are in the context of severe judgment for this behavior. These angels were judged. The second, the first society was judged. False teachers will be judged. And homosexuals and lesbians will be judged because they're going after strange flesh. They stepped out of the bounds, the limits to what that God has set. Okay? And both were judged swiftly and certainly, and I might add severely. And so we're going to finish up this morning by looking at briefly Genesis 6, 3, and 4. So go all the way back to the beginning. Okay? We'll close this up. You guys okay? You follow me so far? Not seeing him asleep, which is good. Verse 3 Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now God has seen what's going on in his creation, and he responds. And you can paraphrase verse 3, something like this. Genesis 6, 3. I have waited for over 1,500 years, and I have run out of patience. My spirit shall not strive with man. That, in essence, is what verse 3 is saying. What does this phrase, my spirit shall not strive with man, mean? Well, this is only the second time in Genesis that we hear or meet the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1, he's hovering over all the waters of the deep, and he's working his part in creation and so on. Here, we see the Holy Spirit was not only working in creation, but he's been working in provoking repentance in the pre-flood society. He is striving. He is still calling people to the Lord. 
but it doesn't last forever. And God's going to judge man in the form of a worldwide flood. And this tells us that the demonic invasion is not ultimately the fault of demons. It's the fault of man. We know that God has a judgment plan for demons. We've just gone over that. What concerns God here in Genesis 6, 1-4 is man. And he's going to destroy man. In fact, we later learn he's sorry he even made man. And I just want us all to see that the Genesis... Genesis, it's, it's a record of the history of man. And this history includes this specific judgment when man opened himself up to demons. They did the same thing that Adam and Eve did. They opened themselves up to Satan. 1,500 years from the fall in the garden of Eden, man has become so corrupt as to try to overrule God's sentence of death to gain God-likeness and eternal life by welcoming demons into his personal life. Is there anything more corrupted, more depraved than that? But thankfully, verse 3 is full of grace and hope. God says, nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. You know what that means? God is going to give the first society 120 years to repent before the flood. God raises up who? Noah. A preacher of righteousness, he is called, and he calls the people to repentance while building an ark. See, pastors are always busy. See that? <laughs> this is the graciousness of God and how rich in grace God is. We know that Moses, Noah did preach for 120 years to that first society. We've learned about God. What do we learn about God? Well, God's way is to warn the wicked. He warns the wicked. He warns the wicked. He warns the wicked. And he offers grace and forgiveness. And he is always patient, allowing them time to repent. But how depraved had the first society become? How far they descended into sin? Noah had no converts after 120 years of preaching. Noah wouldn't have lasted... (laughs) In the church today, because you got churches got to grow, right? And now, verse four: Who are the Nephilim? Let me make it as simple as I can. In verse three, it says, "My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh." What God is saying here is that the people may think that by inviting demons into procreation will produce godlike children, though it elevate humanity beyond the power of God to judge, but reality is this, you're still flesh. See that? You're only flesh. You're not half man and half angel. You're just depraved mortal flesh. And by the way, we see this in other religions. What does Greek society say? Perseus is the offspring of a human woman and who? Zeus. That's the same thing here. Okay? And this is why verse 4 introduced the Nephilim. By definition, Nephilim literally means falling ones, i.e., the kind of people that when they fall on you, they're going to crush you. And this is really nothing more than a reference to powerful and fierce warriors. We, you know, we, could call our, we have great, powerful warriors today. 
the time of Genesis, they were called mighty men and men of renown. They were called Nephilim. What God is really saying by including this reference to Nephilim is this. They're not God-like offspring who are half human and half God who live forever. And they're not a race of people, which some of us have believed. If they were a race of people, they would have ceased to exist because what happened to all that first society? They were drowned out in the flood. They were blotted out. It's simply a term to describe great, powerful men. Why do I say that? Because in Numbers 13, when the ten spies return from the land of Canaan and say, we can't take the land, why? Because the giants, the Nephilim, live there. So it's not, it's not a race of people. It's simply a term referring to strong, powerful warriors. Okay? In that regard, Goliath would be considered what? Nephilim. Alexander the Great would be considered, I would be considered, you got that one, good, you're awake, okay. So let's just not miss this point though. The sexual union of demons and women didn't produce anything different than what already existed. Satan fed them a lie, and all they did was produce more flesh, more men, some were powerful, some weren't, and really, that's it. That's Genesis 6, 1 through 4. We worked our way through a very complex text this morning. And I believe that what I, I just preached to you is a scriptural and reasonable interpretation of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And I believe it's recorded, it's recorded for us to show how corrupted by sin we are. And our need for a redeemer who will crush the head of the serpent Satan as promised in Genesis chapter 3. And so, praise God for being saved. That's it. We're done. I knew this was going to be a little bit longer sermon. If you have questions, I refer you to anybody other than me because my head hurts after going through this. Okay? We have been and always will be until Jesus returns, slowly descending into more and more sin. That's the history of, of human civilization. It's the history of Genesis. But thanks be to God, we have a Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, bless the rest of our day. Uh, fill our hearts with praise of you for saving us, for not leaving us to destroy ourselves as the first society did. Thank you for saving us from our sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.